Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. As we speak, there are approximately 2 million people currently incarcerated in U.S. prisons. Deep within the walls of these prisons is a place where prisoners spend 23 hours a day in featureless cells with no visitors or human contact for years on end, and they are held entirely at administrators' discretion. It's called solitary confinement, and here to talk with me about it is Kermit Ryder, a professor of criminology and an expert on solitary confinement who has written a book on the topic called 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. Kermit, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you paint a picture for us as we start of what a day or a week looks like for someone in solitary confinement? And how does that compare, uh, for example, to someone in the general population? Sure. Uh, So I'll start with a day because I think from there things get pretty repetitive. Uh, So uh, an average day in solitary confinement would usually start uh, pretty early in the morning with the prisoners uh, waking up probably for a morning count where the officers come by and make sure that everybody's still in their cell. Uh, how they would get out is an interesting question, but it's sort of <laughs> prison habit. Um, and and then usually they would be delivered uh, some kind of food, often a, a relatively simple cold breakfast and a kind of paper bag lunch with maybe uh, a, you know white bread and a slice of cheese and an apple or something like that. Um, and that, that would come through a slot in their cell door, so a, a tray would kind of be slid in. And that kind of the extent of the human contact a prisoner in solitary confinement can expect to have on a given day is that food tray kind of sliding Mm -hmm. in and out of their cell door. Um, Most prisoners who maintain their sanity in solitary confinement talk about developing really rigid routines from that time they get up. So a lot of prisoners uh, will spend an hour or two doing a pretty rigorous exercise routine. So, you know, hundreds to thousands of uh, push-ups, jumping jacks, and sit-ups. Uh, on a given day, because that's about all you can do in this space. It's about um, 8 by 10 feet, so imagine the size of a wheelchair-accessible bathroom stall or a parking space. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you have to do things that are pretty contained if you're going to maintain any kind of uh, exercise regime. Uh, And then usually prisoners talk about spending the day, if, if they're lucky and they have people to write to or they have a legal case they're working on, they'll kind of spend the day trying to work and keep their minds busy. Uh, and and they, if they behave in isolation, they're usually allowed either a television or a radio. Uh, although a lot of prisoners I've interviewed talk about trying to limit the amount of time they spend watching TV or listening to the radio to, you know, a, a couple hours a day, maybe a special program. Uh, and then, um, you know, they might go to bed uh, around 8 or 9 p.m. When, when the lights go off. Uh, although people talk about it being very hard to sleep in these places. Uh, um, the, the, you can hear the officers sort of walking on these uh, steel walkways at night, and they often wake you up in the middle of the night in order to make sure you're still there and nothing has happened to you. Prisoners do commit suicide in these conditions mm-hmm. of confinement, so that's one thing they're checking for. Um, and generally, two or three times a week, the prisoners are allowed to leave their cells one at a time to go out for a shower and an hour or two in an outdoor exercise yard that's about twice the size of their cell, but it too is pretty stark. Prisoners describe it as uh, 
being at the bottom of a kind of empty out swimming pool. And prisoners in California a few years ago went on hunger strike to protest these conditions of confinement. One of the things they asked for was a warm cap to wear when they went outside into that exercise yard, also known as a dog run, uh, and, a, and a ball to use to have something to do while they're out there. So that, I think that kind of gives you a sense of the starkness of the conditions. It's a sort of quick brushstroke, broad brushstrokes picture. So this this outdoor gym area, it, there's nothing, there's no equipment or anything? It's just like an empty, empty cement? It, it's like an empty swimming pool, basically. Okay. Uh, I th- that's kind of the best description I've heard of it. Um, after after the hunger strikes in California, the prison system agreed to put pull-up bars in some mm-hmm. of those exercise yards, so like one kind of mounted uh, steel bar. Um, and that, you know, that was considered kind of a, a win in terms of right. softening the conditions. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty stark. And how does someone end up in solitary confinement? This is one of the kind of surprising things, I think, to people when, when I talk about it, is that people don't end up there based on the crime they committed mm-hmm. or what a judge or a jury says about how they should be treated in prison. People end up there based on their in-prison behavior. So Mm -hmm. prison administrators assign prisoners to solitary confinement for one of two reasons, either because they broke a prison rule, uh, maybe they had some kind of contraband, they participated in a fight, and in that case they'd usually be assigned to solitary for a fixed period of time, um, anywhere from a few months to a few years. Uh, But the way that we have gotten so many people in solitary confinement in the U.S., tens of thousands for so many such extended periods of time, um, years at a time, uh, is by people being assigned there indefinitely because they've been labeled dangerous. Usually they're, they're labeled as some kind of gang member and then they're sent into isolation for the length of their criminal sentence. Um, so in California, uh, up until some reforms last year, being labeled a gang member only required three pieces of evidence being placed in your prison file. And those pieces of evidence could include things as simple as your tattoos, what you were reading, if it was considered revolutionary literature, who you were hanging out with on the prison yard, who you'd send a letter to, um, the kinds of drawings you had uh, made in your cell. So things that we might think of as kind of classic First Amendment rights, but mm-hmm. the First Amendment stops at the prison door uh, in the U.S. Um, so that's kind of so one of the surprises about the conditions is, is how, how functionally easy it can be to end up in these really incredibly harsh conditions of confinement and then how hard it can be to prove you're not a gang member or you didn't break that rule and get released. And you say that this is so basically solely at the discretion of prison administrators. Is this, is this uh, idea of using solitary confinement like this limited to these for-profit prisons or is this something more widespread? It is much more widespread. Uh, you know, most prisons in the U.S. have some kind of isolation cell where they can put prisoners for short periods if something goes really wrong, if there's a riot in the prison or someone gets in a fight as a kind of cooling off place. Mm-hmm. But what 23-7 is about and, and what I focused on are these kind of single-use facilities where prisoners are sent for longer-term isolation. So in California, that's Pelican Bay, which has 1,056 beds designed for long-term isolation. And Pelican Bay is on California's northern border with Oregon, so it's, you know, seven, eight hours from San Francisco, 12, 13 hours from Los Angeles, so it's really kind of in the middle of nowhere. So you have to, Mm. you know, you have to put someone there for, (laughs) you don't send someone up there for a few days. Right. Um, So those kinds of facilities tend to be public because, uh, private prison companies don't want to 
deal with the worst of the worst prisoners, mm -hmm. as they're called. They don't want to bid on those contracts for the highest security prisons in general. That said, there is, of course, you know, isolation in private prison facilities. And I, I recently heard some new research about the fact that a lot of de private detention facilities have isolation and, in fact, have mandated, you know, 5 to 10 percent isolation beds. So it's not that it's not used in private facilities, but these kinds of um, massive 500-bed, 1,000-bed long-term isolation facilities tend to be public facilities. Which isn't to say that they're not incredibly expensive. Right, <laughs> right, right, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, speaking of uh, Pelican Bay, California's Pelican Bay State Prison is what might be called a supermax prison. Um, and this is sort of at the heart of uh, this discussion on solitary confinement. So what, what happened at Pelican Bay? What puts it in sort of the spotlight and uh, it's the, you know, the main focus of your book? Well, Pelican Bay was one of the first of these modern supermax facilities. So the book kind of tells the story about how these facilities cropped up in local places. Arizona built the very first in 1986, and mm -hmm. then California prison officials were building, were looking at new prisons to build as prison populations increased in the 80s, and they saw this facility in Arizona, and they basically built a bigger, better one in California. Uh, and then from there, the this innovation of these, and, and what makes the supermax distinctive is um, both the the structure and the um, kind of technology that's that's throughout the facility. So it's made of these poured concrete blocks that are kind of tessellated together so that an officer can look out over multiple pods of cells at a time. So it's kind of a modern panopticon where mm -hmm. you know the prisoners can't really see out. Uh, they don't have. I don't think I mentioned they have no access to natural light. Usually there are no windows. There are okay. just fluorescent lights on all day. Um, so they, another kind of form of technology, actually, <laughs> that we can have these lights on all the time. Um, so, so officers look out over multiple pods of cells at a time, and they just press a button in a central control booth to open one door at a time. So a prisoner can go out to the shower or the exercise yard. So it's another way that there's really very minimal human contact. And it was that kind of model, that structure, the technology that was copied all over the U.S. from places like Arizona and California in the 80s. And then Pelican Bay has also received attention for the kinds of abuses that have happened there. Mm -hmm. So when it first opened in the in it opened in 1989, and in the early 1990s there were a number of exposés about horrible abuses of prisoners there. And then more recently, it was in the news because prisoners there coordinated a hunger strike that spread throughout the state of California and lasted for eight weeks in 2013. Um, it really drew attention to the conditions of confinement there. So it's kind of repeatedly been in the news for these harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. And how does something like that spread across the state? Um, you know, you're talking about this such an isolated thing. If if one prisoner starts a hunger strike, how does something like that get coordinated? And mm -hmm. then how does it spread across the entire state, for example? This is this is a fascinating story. So in two. In 2011 was when prisoners first started uh, coordinating to, to plan a hunger strike. And it started in this small unit at Pelican Bay. The pods are grouped into blocks of eight, basically. So there's four cells on the bottom, four cells on the top. And within that pod, prisoners can shout at each other. Uh, they can slide notes under the doors sometimes. So they are able to communicate just a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the prison system had, in order to kind of further isolate people, had placed a number of guys in a pod from allegedly rival gangs. 
So they had this pod that was supposedly gang leaders from all these different gangs. And the idea was they would be even more extremely isolated that way because these gangs were supposed to be mortal enemies, and the thought was they wouldn't talk to each other. And so, you know, to the extent they could even develop social communications in there, they'd be isolated. But these guys ended up over time getting to know each other and deciding that these conditions were so harsh and they had no hope of getting out and they wanted to draw attention to it, and they came up with this idea by passing paper back and forth of having a hunger strike to protest the conditions. They drafted a a kind of manifesto about that, and then they sent it out to a number of prisoners' rights organizations in California, mostly in in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then those prisoners' rights organizations sent notices back into other prisons around the state. So it was kind of this back and forth. And then people knew that there was this, the first hunger strike was in 2011. There was a date when people were going to start refusing food, and it was incredibly coordinated. The first strike had 6,000 participants, and then the, the second strike a few years later when they felt like there hadn't been many reforms had, had an estimated 30,000 prisoners participating. And, and so I, you said one of the results was that they put, uh, that Pelican Bay put some um, bars, some pull-up bars in the, in the, out the exercise area. What other types of things uh, came about from this? So that was, there were these very minor concessions that were made after the first hunger strike, like uh, allowing prisoners a few more options in terms of if they had money on on the books in prison, the kinds of things they could buy in isolation, like colored pencils. So Hmm. one of the beautiful things that happened after the hunger strikes was instead of getting these graphite drawings for prisoners, people started getting drawings with more colors. Um, okay. kind of a, I think a beautiful representation of the the tiny changes that can make such a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm. But after the 2013 hunger strikes, actually things things got the, the changes were even more dramatic. Basically, the the class of prisoners who were in kind of at the center of the strike over the course of the strike, it turned out that um, through news requests by the media, it came out that more than 500 prisoners had been in California's Pelican Bay Supermax mm-hmm. for more than 10 years. Hmm. Uh, and and those prisoners who've been there more than ten years are kind of at the at the core of this strike, and that really mobilized attention. And actually, a, a lawsuit developed around that. A judge in Northern California certified a class of those 500 prisoners, um, and there was this pressure to. And and the litigation was about whether there could be um, better controls on who was sent there, shorter, more time limits on how long someone could spend there. Um, and that case was settled last year, uh, and has drastically changed the procedures in California. So. One of the big things was it got rid of that policy of any three things like a tattoo or what you're reading could land you in isolation. Um, now someone has to actually do something wrong, mm-hmm. and the maximum time a prisoner can spend there is five years uh, at, at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the state promised to get all these guys who'd been in Pelican Bay for more than 10 years back into the general prison population. And as of last month, of those 500 who'd been there more than 10 years, there are only five left at Pelican Bay. Okay. Uh, so the state has engaged in a massive reform effort, actually even since the proofs of 23-7 went to press. Um, now, there's really big questions about what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. What do you do with an empty panopticon uh, that, where there's really no space for people to do group programming, you know, to share meals or to participate in courses? Um, so you know, right now the state has a bunch of empty prison beds. Uh, it's not clear, you know, whether those will get filled with some other population. And then there's the challenge of these guys who've been in isolation for 10 years or more trying to reintegrate into mm-hmm. the prison population in the state and what's happening to them. And it, it remains to be seen how that will go. 
And yeah, I mean, people are in this. Some of these people were there for ten years. Uh, you know, what are the, what are the effects of staying in solitary confinement for so long? They can be pretty horrible. Uh, research has shown in this sort of <laughs> outside of outside of criminology in, mm-hmm. the, in in neuroscience and kind of understanding the human mind. Research has shown that after even a few hours and certainly a few days in conditions of sensory deprivation, people start to have hallucinations, anxiety attacks, inability to sleep, um, heart palpitations, all kinds of physical and mental symptoms from uh, lack of sensory stimulation and lack of human contact. And those symptoms can last for years. People who've been in isolation describe symptoms kind of like PTSD, um, it's been labeled shoe syndrome for uh, security housing unit syndrome to kind of describe the experience people have. Um, so that and uh, rates of suicide in these units are, are much higher than rates of suicide outside of these units, as you can imagine. So there's, there's all kinds of psychological and increasingly research is showing physical consequences of, of being in these kinds of conditions, like maybe even brain changes that happen from mm. lack of stimulation. Um, so, <laughs> uh, unclear what will happen, you know, how many of these guys are suffering from those kinds of symptoms and whether they're getting the resources to deal with them. Of course, uh, you know, many of the stories in the book talk about people who've been in isolation and have survived against all odds. They certainly describe shoe syndrome or PTSD-like symptoms, but they're able to, you know, I, I, people get released directly from these conditions in California onto the streets, and some of them actually do okay. Hmm. They've spent 15, 20 years in prison. They've learned to maintain these disciplined routines, and they. one of the big things people say to me is one of the hardest things about leaving the shoe is they can't break that routine. If they were doing huh. a 1,000 um, push-ups and jumping jacks every morning, they continue to do that in the general population, and then even when they leave prison, it's kind of the, the way they maintained a sense of control, and it can be very hard to change that. And that's another thing prisoners talk about. You know, you sort of you live in this tiny space and you're able to control every little detail mm-hmm. and letting go of that kind of control in the general prison population can be really hard and psychologically challenging for prisoners. So that's just a, you know, a sampling of the kinds of things people could experience. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, I would think that, you know, being in something like that for 10 years and then finding yourself on the, back out on the streets especially, I would think that'd be a pretty daunting thing. So it's it's amazing to hear that um, that people can overcome that. People people can, and the, I mean, you know, basically, we've been running a massive experiment with humans for the last twenty twenty five years, at least in terms of this long term solitary confinement, and we're still, you know, making sense of what happens. That some some people are clearly psychologically destroyed. There have been, you know, in Colorado, a guy was released directly from solitary confinement, and he actually. Um, murdered the director of the California of the Colorado Department of Corrections, who mm. who was in the process of trying to reform solitary in the mm. state. Um, and then on the other hand, like I said, you know, I've talked to guys who who get out and they're able to, you know, especially if they have community ties, people to go home to, they're able to try to rebuild their lives. Um, and certainly, not everyone who gets out is violent. Not everyone who ended up there in the first place, you know, was there for any kind of violent reason. So that that makes sense. Right. So uh, it sounds like, you know, there are maybe some changes happening. What what does the future of solitary confinement look like? Well, part of the story of the book is that solitary confinement came about while people weren't paying that much attention (laughs) and that it has been very hard to regulate. And so I think 
the future of solitary confinement kind of depends on whether the attention that's being paid to it right now mm -hmm. is sustained. Because um, part of the story is that prison officials have tough jobs, and they're often very scared of the people that they're put in charge of guarding. Mm -hmm. uh, and they develop their own tools to manage those populations. And one of the tools they developed in the 1980s with basically no legislative or judicial oversight in the first facilities in Arizona and California was this long-term solitary confinement. And it was um, years before, you know, even even judges and lawyers in the state who oversaw prison conditions in California didn't know Pelican Bay had opened until they started receiving, didn't know what the conditions were like in Pelican Bay until they started receiving letters from prisoners inside in the early 1990s. Um, so, and, and then once you have a facility like that up and running, it takes years to try to figure out how to control it. And there was litigation in the early 90s. And after the litigation, fewer people were being beaten up and abused, uh, but, but people remained in these conditions. And then, you know, then it took 10, 15 more years to realize how many people had been in there, how long, and to try to reform that. And so I think, you know, the reforms happening now are really exciting. But if we don't pay attention to where these prisoners go and whether some of them are being put back in isolation in other places in the state, you know, we could easily have another system like this developing in 10 more years that we're kind of starting over trying to make sense of and reform. And that's kind of what the history shows is there have been these periods of reform followed by kind of making it even more hidden and resistant to further reform. Right. Is there is there a model, you know, maybe elsewhere that 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 is a good model to follow for for the way to run these prisons? Well, I think the easy answer is maybe we don't want anyone in conditions of confinement quite this harsh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. So a lot of the a lot of the kind of principles that people are working with now are if we need these kinds of conditions for some very dangerous uh, prisoners, you know, they should be as brief and the least restrictive possible. So you know, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture has said more than 15 days in these conditions can constitute torture. So you know, one way to think about this is, okay, maybe, maybe this might in some cases need to happen for really short periods of time, but can there be really strict restrictions? Not five years like California just implemented, <laughs> but, but way shorter periods mm -hmm. of time in, in these conditions. And then you know, how harsh do they have to be? Like, would it be okay for someone to have a book or a handball mm -hmm. or to see their sister? Uh, and, and maybe that would actually help. Um, so states are experimenting with things like maybe prisoners can have time in a room where they see scenes of nature hmm. uh, because they literally talk about going years at a time without seeing grass or a bird or the moon. Um, so I think it's a combination of those you know, thinking about drastically reducing the length of time people can spend in these places and then thinking really carefully about um, how to mitigate the harshness of the, of the physical conditions. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like there, there's a little bit of a ways to go. Um, just to, to talk about maybe from the other side briefly, are there, are there, you know, officials at these prisons, guards, for example, that have to deal with this on a daily basis? Are there, how do they feel about this kind of thing? <laughs> this is kind of the next frontier, as far as I'm concerned. In, mm -hmm. the, in the process of doing this research, I talked to a lot of kind of mid-level prison officials, people working in headquarters who worked on things like prison building and design and operational procedures. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wasn't, because these facilities are so closed, I wasn't able to gain access to the to very many of the staff actually working in these facilities. And I actually think that's a big problem mm -hmm. because it's those staff going into these prisons every day 
who are really scared and who are resisting changes in places like California, um, where the the prison guards union intervened in this big class action case on behalf of these guys who've been in isolation more than 10 years and said, we don't support these reforms and we think there's going to be all kinds of problems, um, and, and really kind of resisted. And I think, you know, until those staff who are going into these institutions every day sit down at the table uh, and and explain what they're so afraid of and sort of get to participate in a conversation about how to make their jobs less scary. I think reform is going to be hard to sustain. Uh, and that's something that I, I really only realized over the course of the research, how, you know, that whether or not I agree with the kinds of things they're afraid of, I think they, they have genuine fears and part of reform has to be kind of engaging with how to respond to that and how to give them less abusive tools to manage those fears. Well, Kermit, thank you very much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure. The book is 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement, and it's available now wherever books are sold. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.